you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. People have been banging down my door for help with this inclusive recruitment. So let's get straight into that conversation now. Uh, and we have three guests, Dr. Susie Riddat of Oxford Brooks, Pooja Agarwal of Public Practice and uh, Dr. Binna Kandola of Pern Kandola. Uh, what I'd like to do is start with you, Binna, and ask each of you to introduce yourselves and what does inclusive recruitment mean to you? I'm Binna Candola. I'm the senior partner and co-founder of Pern Candola, a practice of business psychologists based in Oxford. Um, I'm visiting professor at Leeds University Business School and at Aston University Business School as well. Uh, inclusive recruitment means to me means ensuring that you attract the widest range of talent possible and your selection procedures enable you to select the most talented individuals. If you believe that talent is naturally distributed, if you manage to attract that diversity to your organisation, you should be selecting for it. Thank you. Um, Pooja, if you can introduce yourself and what inclusive recruitment means for you. Thank you, Masha. So I'm Pooja Agrawal. I'm the co-founder of Public Practice. Just for a bit of background of what Public Practice is, it's a social enterprise and we run a placement programme of putting people from built environment experience. So architecture is definitely one of those skills, but anyone who's impacting places and we place them into local authorities for a year long placement. And so recruitment is one of the core things that we do. We are bringing people and placing them into jobs. And we think very much about what inclusive recruitment looks like. And for me, that is completely, as Binna said, is bringing talent, recognising talent, recognising our own biases and trying to design systems and frameworks to be as inclusive as possible. Well, very much. I'm sure everyone's going to hang on your every word later. And uh, Susie, if you could just explain a little bit about who you are and what does inclusive recruitment mean to you? Thank you, Marsha. Um, my name is Dr. Susie Ridout. Um, I'm an associate lecturer doc at um, Oxford Brookes University, and I specialise in neurodiversity and inclusion. So specifically, I think that inclusive recruitment um, means that we should be looking at things a lot earlier on than just when people apply to university because if we don't we're failing people before they even start because a lot of people for me um, neurodivergent people autistic people people who are dyslexic have ADHD all of those sorts of people um, people who process information different differently are not going to be included in the same way that other people are and it also doesn't allow us to look at intersections of identities. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, introduction, each of you. Um, Binna, if I can come to you first and ask you, you know, how inclusive are recruitment practices generally, currently, by your observation? 
Recruitment, yeah, for with our clients, I don't think recruitment's necessary, particularly at junior levels, especially at junior levels, uh, isn't uh, isn't that bad actually. I think that uh, organisations they place a lot of emphasis on um, getting diversity in uh, the more junior levels in the organisation. Um, the um, there are specialist roles like architects. Um, where it's proven to be more difficult to recruit people in even at these more junior levels. But sometimes you find that in some of the professions, people congratulate themselves a little too early. You'll find that accountancy firms, for example, I did a, a, a review of the um, recruitment into accountancy firms from university and organisations like PwC congratulating, on, you know, congratulating themselves on the fact that 25% of their graduate intake are from minorities, which, is, which sounds great. Um, but but it's, it's kind of things like that without a reference point. And actually, something like 50% of students studying accountancy university are from minorities. So they kind of present, so you, even when organisations present data like that, it's kind of, it can be very partial. Um, but then recruitment at the more senior levels, it tends to be more difficult and because people don't progress into those roles. And it tends to be then that it's the executive search firms that can that get, get blamed for it rather than the organisations taking responsibility. I'm not saying that executive search firms are innocent, but they but they um, but, but you can you cannot take accountability and responsibility for the recruitment that happens at more senior levels. But if you're saying it's it's not not that bad at earlier levels, what does that mean? What 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 are what are firms doing that mean that it, you know they're not doing too badly at a recruiting and diversity? Of this stuff? is generally speaking. This is generally speaking. The more, the more specialist the role, you actually find that uh, you know the, the the lower the diversity of uh, uh, entry into that organisation. Um, but the, the what it means is actually we're they're more conscious about diversity um, at the lower levels in the organisation. And when, when it becomes more senior, um, actually we become less concerned about diversity and the diversity tends to disappear. That data that you presented, part one, 15%, part, part three, 4%. Something happens in the process which starts to <laughs> knock the diversity out. And, and these are, as you said, Marcia, these, these things are the way we interact with one another, the messages that we send to one another. It's kind of the way we communicate, the way we support one another. It's kind of the, the, uh, the, the things that uh, Pooja and uh, Susie were referring to as well, actually. Um, Pooja, um, you know, you, you're familiar with the built environment. You know, what would you say is the current state of play when it comes to inclusive recruitment practices? I think it's terrible. I, I come, I'm an architect by background and I worked for a number of years in architecture practices. So I've done the whole thing of ap applying for jobs from part one, part two, part three. And the, the way the process of recruitment in architecture works is completely about who you know, where, which university you went to. So um, kind of anecdotally, I know that architecture practices sometimes only hire people from particular universities they say actually we own you know we know that they this person from this university has this particular approach this particular aesthetic that really works well with our particular aesthetic and therefore we're just going to employ people from there and already you can see why there's so much bias built into that questioning who actually has the opportunity and accessibility for certain universities the second thing i would say is is the 
interview process usually if there is an interview is generally visual so people are presenting their portfolios and talking through their work and then you can start to question perhaps why certain aesthetics might be um sort of favored over other aesthetics and that kind of links again to what university you might have gone to but there's definitely some bias there about how we define good design in terms of what the communication style might be from different people so I think there are loads of different opportunities for being a bit more creative about how architects actually recruit and employ people. Susie, um, from your point of view, um, the uh, neurodiverse and neurodivergent uh, perspective, uh, how inclusive would you say recruitment practices are currently uh, in your experience? Um, if we're talking generally, I would say absolutely diabolical. Um, if we're talking within a school of architecture, um, so the one at Oxford Brooks, um, we tend to attract a lot of neurodivergent students. So the rate of students who identify as dyslexic, autistic, ADHD, things like that, um, is very, very high. Now, one of the problems with that is that People want you to, um, if you need extra support or accommodations in place, which the law says you have a right to have, um, people will only signpost you to um, disability teams or mental health teams, and you have to have an accompanying diagnosis. Now, many people don't want that. Some people self-identify with certain um, identities such as autism. Uh, some people prefer to have a diagnosis and it is entirely up to the individual. Also, if you have a black person who comes along who is autistic, it tends to be outsiders who tell us what how we should identify. And that can be a huge uh, barrier to how we're recruited. Because if you have people who are discriminating on a racial basis, that's an issue. If you have people then discriminating against you because you disclose as being autistic, that's an issue. The intersection of both is also an issue. So, I mean, I'm, I very much look at intersectionality all the time throughout my work and the barriers to recruitment, the, the barriers um, actually in employment are very different to what we're actually seeing within um, neurodivergence at, at Oxford Brooks within the department. Is this, It's a stepping from the department into employment because we're getting very high pass rates, distinction and high master's levels at that university. Um, but it's then a stepping stone into the next stage. Pooja, if I can come to you and ask, you know, you're very much involved in actually applying this inclusive recruitment process. What does that look like? Sure. I think we are trying really hard to get this right. And, and it's, it's definitely a work in progress. So just to talk through how it works at public practice, I said there's three kind of key steps, three steps of recruitment we undertake, sort of reflecting on what Susie said earlier, that people absorb and process information in different ways, but people also communicate information in different ways. So what we try and do is accommodate for the most diverse ways of 
communicating and processing things as possible and taking all of those into account. So for public practice, we've got a three-step recruitment process. So let me just talk you through each of those in a bit more detail to help you understand what we're thinking. And we're always up for feedback and learning more. So our first step is really an online application, which is actually currently live for a few more days for our next round of recruitment. And you can see we basically ask a few questions and try and keep the word limit as sort of it's about 200 250 words we in those questions what we're really trying to gauge is what people's values are do they align with our values do they align with our vision and do they align with our mission do they believe in the public sector do they believe they can make that change so we're not um sort of we're almost sort of seeing the potential of people perhaps rather than necessarily looking at their experience so you might be working for three years or 10 years but actually if you believe in something if you want to make that change you're we are up for working with you so I guess that's one of the things in terms of even the questions how we communicate it, it is written but there's also videos in parallel we do um, drop-in sessions where we actually talk through each of those questions be really open and transparent about what we're looking for so we're not really trying to trip up people we're not trying to catch people out is actually trying to provide people with the most information possible at this stage we do ask for cvs but cvs are not taken into account for the next step the other thing we do is once all of these people have actually answered these questions we have multiple people scoring these answers so we have three people who score each of these answers but it's done in a blind way so it's not me scoring your say application and therefore scoring your questions one two three and five so if i if i was doing that you start to by question three, you already start to have biases in terms of what your first answer might have been. And you might start to write someone off. Well, actually, they might have written one answer about the values piece much better than perhaps the vision piece. So what we get to do is three different people blind score these questions and answers in, um, in a sporadic random manner. And we use a different and, and systems to, to do that. So that's the kind of first step. The second step, so the people who make it to the second round, we des we've designed what we call placement workshops. And they're a whole day of a design where we get multiple people. Um, it's almost like a kind of, yeah, it is a placement workshop. It's like a, um, a day where we set up different exercises, again, to test people in different ways. Again, understanding people have different strengths and skills. So just really quickly in the day, we have three different steps. So the first thing is a five minute presentation generally tends to be about a place that matters to them. That is very much about public speaking written, like why has someone chosen a particular place? And yes, they're put on the spot to speak to usually about 50 or 60 people in the room. And we understand that that requires a certain level of confidence and communication and, and, and certain things like that. But then in the afternoon, we have what is a group exercise. So about five to eight people work together to try and solve a problem. And what, there, what we're testing is how people work in groups. And, and that's a very different type of skill or experience. And we look at things such as humility and how people engage with different people and understand, again, there's very different ways of doing that. And then finally, we have an interview, which is perhaps in a more, it is a bit more formal and, and we have more kind of set questions. But before we actually get to the placement workshop, we do ask if anyone has particular accessibility needs and and, and if people did want to have the questions up front, we do send that it to them so that, again, it, we're not trying to catch people out and different people like to process information in different ways. 
when we're actually doing the matching process where we are looking at the best person for the best role, we do undertake positive action. And we have seen, um, and, and you know, you know the difference between positive discrimination, and positive action. So I don't need to necessarily go into that. And and that I think is is something that we take very seriously. And the data piece is really important in this, and we can pick up on that later. And then the final step is possibly where we have the least amount of control is when the local authority themselves interview people. But we do a lot to again brief both sides, make sure that they both kind of understand what they're trying to get out of this encourage authorities to take opportunities and sometimes for example we have lots of people who have international experience who just can't get jobs in, in the UK because they don't know the UK planning system and it's partly our role to say hold on you need to give this person an opportunity we will help them through our program to develop and understand that knowledge of what public UK public planning looks like um, but I'll stop there and we can pick up the data piece. Thank you, um, Pooja. I mean, Bina, do you have any thoughts on that? And, and what would your um, uh, actions look like, uh, recommended actions look like? Yeah, well, um, we, we advertise in a variety of sources. We look at the wording uh, to kind of make sure that, ensure that people are aware of uh, kind of the, the, our values and the, the, the climate into which they're, which they're entering. Uh, and and emphasising the fact that we are looking at people and their abilities, and that we're a we're a supportive environment, um, and we will advertise in a number of different ways and a number of different media, as well as that, uh, the the um, a number uh, quite a number of us have quite extensive diverse networks. We kind of will promote jobs through those means. So there's a variety of mechanisms by which we attract people. Then it's a very systematic process then, of having criteria being the the. Um, the um, the applications being evaluated against the criteria by trained individuals followed by an initial interview and then there will be a, a, a multi the multi-dimensional assessment phase which would include as Pooja was saying actually elements um, of, uh, of a personality element actually assessing their work style uh, and how the, the um, and we would do interactive elements. Uh, it's more difficult in this type of environment, but we try to get a range of um, assessment methods and tools into our assessment process. Um, and all, it, all being administered by, by trained individuals. And, then, and, and clearly it's got to be an interactive process and we're learning about the candidate and they're learning about us too. And um, uh, just uh, you're, in your book, Racism at Work, The Danger of Indifference, you've got a, a piece in there about employment and the fact that the recruitment pra practices at the moment tend to um, prioritise cost and convenience hmm. over, you know, the actual going through in detail and putting in the time, effort and resource hmm. required. I mean, what, what are the um, implications of prioritising cost and convenience over, um, you know, any any other priority. You know, the, the biggest thing, um, Marsh, is you, you actually look at uh, uh, rather than looking at how effective is this process going to be, how fair is this process, and how reliable is this process. Kind of three questions you should be asking about any process. You ask how cheap it, how cheap is it, and how many people can it process, and how quickly. Uh, and so the questions about validity, reliability, and fairness actually get pushed to one side. And you'd have thought, as a professional recruiter, they should be the most the most important questions you should be asking. Because if you don't have, if it's not valid, so it doesn't predict 
people who are going to be effective. It doesn't, it doesn't identify the people who are going to be effective in the role, but it's not, it's, it doesn't matter how much it costs, it's going to cost you too much. The, and if it's not reliable, that's going to put a limit on the validity of the process itself. And if it's not fair, you kind of said that actually, you know, and it's, it's not giving people the opportunity to show the best of themselves, then you're just squandering the talent that's presenting itself to you. One uh, thing. And, yeah, sorry, go on. I was just going to say one thing that also seems to be missing as well is you mentioned evaluation of and, and getting receiving feedback on the process as well. We don't tend to get that very often, do we? Yeah, yeah, and, and it's always valuable to receive, actually, um, and we can improve our processes as a as a consequence as a consequence of those things. But it's improving a lot of so actually that, that uh, it's this overarching kind of ambition that you have for a process that it should be valid, reliable, and fair, uh, and uh, and we should be working as hard as we can to be able to to do this. But it also means that if you say to people. Um, your recruiters need to be trained. They need to be trained in how to do the job. They need to be trained in how to do it fairly. They need to be understand the types of bias that can intrude into the, uh, into the recruitment and selection processes. And people don't want to know that these days. When I started my career, people did, were prepared to train recruiters, actually. I had some, some organisations who said, if, unless you're trained, you will not be able to, to, to carry out an interview. And you very rarely hear, hear statements like that these days. Mm, interesting point. Um, Susie, uh, what sort of actions do you, do you want to see more of when it comes to inclusive recruitment? Well, I wrote down some, Marsha. <laughs> Listening to Pooja and, and Binner, I've um, got a whole load more in my head. Um, so if I pick up on some of their points, I think that might be more useful, perhaps. Yes, please do. Um, so I know that um, questions has been mentioned quite a lot. Well, questions for a lot of autistic neurodivergent people can be a real sort of no-no it you know that can be too many questions or we misinterpret questions um or we take questions too literally not everybody that's a bit of a generalization but lots of questions can be um without any clarification that we've understood exactly what you are asking of us can be a little bit overwhelming and then people can start to shut down um I think presentations, again, is another area where um, neurodivergent people can trip themselves up because um, I know a lot of people who, because of very high levels of anxiety, prefer to be placed in a certain order in the presentation. So they would find it easier to go maybe not first, but maybe second or just before lunchtime. But having that option would make things a lot easier for them than just being asked to do the presentation. Um, and being told what you would expect to see in a presentation, not we'd like a presentation, that's a little bit too abstract. So we need a little bit more. Um, and I, I would argue that everybody needs a little bit more clarity um, over expectations. Um, so public speaking, yes, it is important, but we do need clarity. We do need a framework to set that in. Group exercises, that fills me with absolute horror because it's the one thing that I do address <laughs> probably every single day of my life with people because people tend to set up group work um, in the most horrific way. And it's usually the autistic people, the neurodivergent people who, who really are... Um, sort of pushed to the background or have their ideas ignored or conversely they do all the work 
and are seen to be taking over. Whereas it, that's actually, unless it's managed well, um, and taking up your point, Bina, by someone who um, is trained in how to work with and alongside and include neurodivergent people, that is never going to work properly. Um, and I think, yes, you do need access needs addressed and accommodations addressed so that you get sort of real sort of equity and parity in the whole process. Um, not just equality, but it's equity and parity. Um, <laughs> and um, I know that, yes, things need to be valid and, re and reliable and fair, but I would put it almost in the other way, the other way around. I think it needs to be fair and reliable and valid. Um, and the valuation, I know of so many people who say to me, okay, well, I didn't do well at this interview. And I contacted people and said, could you tell me why? So that I can improve how I, how I perform for the, my next interview. And they said, sorry, we don't provide feedback. Now, what sort of a process is that? It's a failed process. It makes a whole lot of nonsense of a system. And I take your point, um, Binner. It, it's like, why are you spending money on this process if you're not going to evaluate it properly, if you're not going to provide pe people with feedback? Because once they've failed once with going to an interview for your organisation, are you saying that they can never approach your organisation again? I sincerely would hope not. Um, and I think that really has to be a point that people reflect on properly. And this is not just for neurodivergent individuals. It's for we're talking neurodiversity here. We're talking intersectionality. Um, so I think it's right across the board. People need to look at interview processes and procedures. Susie, um, I'd like to, to ask you a little bit about the environment and making sure that's as accessible and welcoming as possible for those who are neurodivergent. What does that look like? Um, it's unique to every individual. Um, so, and I, and I think one of the issues about sensory environments is that um, people are having to um, almost out themselves, whether or not they want to, they're going to have to disclose things if they want to be comfortable in an interview situation. And, um, I mean, even at the age I am, I'm very aware that people do discriminate still at interviews. Um, so if you're asking for various things to be addressed, such as I don't need to have this type of lighting, I don't need to have a lot of noise, I don't need to have a lot of people around me or movement around me, I don't need the temperature too high, I don't need certain smelly carpet cleaning fluids, once you've got a whole long list like this, people are beginning to think, oh, goodness me, should we really recruit this type of person? Well, that's not the way to be approaching it. I would suggest you go the other way and you start looking at your environment first of all, so that it is generally much more inclusive for a wider range of people. And so you're minimising the amount of sensory issues that people are going to have to talk about. Um, and then again, that goes for everybody really because once you're sort of addressing it for autistic people um it just generally tends to suit a wider population um but definitely lighting is a massive biggie um for a lot of people um but you know i, th I think checking with people beforehand is really important because if you've got this sensory environment wrong people automatically do not perform at their best because they're so worried about 
whether the light is going to bring on a seizure or make them really uncomfortable, whether they're going to get really hot and sweaty because the temperature is wrong, all those sorts of things. And that distracts you. Um, and if you can't focus because you're distracted about being uncomfortable, you won't do it, do your best. So you're automatically discriminated against. Mm, some really interesting points there, Pooja, about uh, the, the environment. But beyond that as well, you know, the, there, there is a lot around, OK, how do we measure all, all, all of this and make sure that we are getting the diversity of people that we really would like to see? So what does that look like for you? I think there's, there's, yeah, there's two levels. So that's the first point I talk about is the feedback. So I guess more qualitative um uh, feedback in terms of our recruitment process and I take Susie's points earlier around you know position of when people speak and that's something we think about and especially from feedback we've learned that also feedback from how we make the group and exercises feel really inclusive and supportive and facilitation and we learn that from every single round of recruitment we do how to um, make these environments as inclusive as possible but there's also the quantitative side of this and how um, and since I've during the last four months, we've been looking at taking a much more rigorous data-led approach to our um, to our recruitment process and actually starting to gather data at every step of our recruitment and seeing the difference of where people are dropping out or there certain protective character characteristics that are being impacted in different ways. So we've only we've run this process seven times now. We're a young organization. And um, there has been some inconsistency in the data that we've collected so far. So it's still early days to perhaps get concrete data. But we are starting to see that, A, in actually making sure that we collect the data in a very consistent way, for example, in how we measure and um, measure how we capture ethnicity, but also um, other things. And I actually thought the form that we did to come into the RBA today around sort of socioeconomic backgrounds is really interesting and something we'll take with us and learn from. So I guess one of the things we've seen is we have been particularly poor in attracting black men to our programme. And we've only been able to learn that from taking a very kind of clear data-led approach. So for example, we are now running a sort of six-month campaign celebrating black men who have worked in the public sector. So taking a very targeted approach to um, celebrating people, telling people that, you know, people being able to recognise themselves and see themselves as working in the public sector in the built environment, that is something for them. Um, so I guess the second thing is that, you know, what do you focus on? And again, that is a evolving picture. So for us, this round, we have looked at black men, but ability is definitely something we will be looking at. And it's just, I think it takes time to bring people into the process. So it's almost like needs to be a kind of quite a long term strategy. I think people try and think that they can solve things in the next round of recruitment every six months. But actually, it's a, it, you need to be thinking about that kind of three year, five year strategy. And what are the steps that need to be taken now? What sort of um, organizations you need to reach out to who are the contacts you can make who can help spread that message and then finally um, you know one thing I'm really conscious of is who how we even communicate our data and who are we comparing ourselves to so for example historically we always um, measured ourselves in terms of BAME and white and we would be and we are sort of 24% BAME associates to date and 74% white um, 76% white and actually if you can if we compare ourselves to the industry be it architecture planning and surveying which is nine three and four percent we are doing you know incredibly well hey woohoo but actually I I want to be much more honest and actually look at 
our proportion to the communities we serve. So we are operating in three different regions at the moment. We've started to actually break down our, for example, our ethnicity per region. So for London, for example, where the population is 40% BME or um, uh, we are sort of 28%, so we can be doing much better. But actually in the east of England, we're doing better than that. And then let's talk about BAME. We are trying not to speak about that publicly, but I've just done that. But I think we, in terms of how we're actually communicating our data, you, the way that, the, I mean, you can talk about this, you know, that is how data is measured and calculated. And, and that is the way we are able to even benchmark ourselves to national populations. But for our own kind of data management and looking at comparisons, we're taking a much more granular approach if we talk about ethnicity as well, in terms of the people we have from different backgrounds, and that's how we're communicating it. And it, when we are just talking about our own statistics, which we will be reporting annually and being very honest and transparent about that. Mm. Yeah, a lot of lot of interesting points there. Bina, when we're talking about, you know, Pooja talked about that long-term view. When you recruit someone, it's not just for now. It should be, you know, with a view to supporting and helping develop and, and, and so on. You know, how much do you you see of that long-term view um, in the way that people are recruiting at the moment? I think it becomes a, a quite a short-term goal actually. We, we've, we've, we've achieved X percent and that looks really good. But the, the, what we find with a lot of our clients and, uh, and we're not talking about architectural organizations here is that the, the, um, whatever the diversity they get in at the more junior levels that doesn't translate into more diversity at senior levels. So there are blockages along the way, and we know what they are actually, which leads me to kind of a point just to add to the the very valuable um, uh, kind of advice that's been given by Susie and by Pooja. So, so Susie's talking about the environment, which is I found extremely helpful, and uh, Pooja was talking about the processes and the way we evaluate, which is again is extremely valuable. As a psychologist, I would say that the, the third element of this is actually to look at ourselves, not other people necessarily, but mm. ourselves. Because the, the, uh, actually, it's very easy to point the finger at somebody else and say, you are biased and you can do better. Uh, it serves the purpose of putting the issue about bias and prejudice and sexism or whatever it is, about putting it out there. It's somebody else's issue. And yet we are all biased. And so some degree of self-reflection is actually really important here. And holding the mirror to ourselves as opposed to pointing the finger at other people, I think is extremely important. So as recruiters... We need to. We we all need to be able to say actually that we are all biased, and we need to work harder to try and make whatever processes we have work as well as we possibly can. Thank you, Vinner. And that's but that becomes an issue in organisations then, because the bias then be, becomes in how we interpret people's behaviour, how we interpret their performance, the performance ratings they get, whether we identify them as talent. So the whole thing kind of there's a lot about us. That mm. we need to kind of examine as well. Yes, and 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 hopefully, you know, this is where the the CQ piece comes in because that's what asks, what is mm. it about me which needs mm. to change so that I could be more effective at working and relating with you, or what is it about our organisation that needs to change so that we can be more effective at working relating with others? Yeah. And this point about feedback as well, I'm, you know, is it not career suicide to sort of give feedback to an employer to, uh, to say, you know, that recruitment process was a little bit rubbish? You've got to be big about it. I mean, you've got to be adult about it. I think Susie's point is that we we get we give feedback and we like to get feedback, and that's the way we improve. And if you're going to be that sensitive about it, you shouldn't be involved in the recruitment process. 
We have been discussing inclusive recruitment with Dr. Bina Kandola of Pan Kandola, Dr. Susie Ridout from Oxford Brooks, and Pooja Agrawal from Public Practice. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. 